All right, well, we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 today, so you can open your Bibles to there. As you find your place, um, have, have you ever had one of those situations where you're going somewhere, you've been invited to an event, someone asks you to come and join them, and you're not really totally sure how you're expected to dress? You don't know if you should get all fancied up and, and put on the, the nice shoes and the belt and, and, and look spiffy, or whether it's a casual affair and you're supposed to come in, in a t-shirt or, or jeans. And, uh, and there's probably been one of those times when you showed up and you were way overdressed. Everybody else was casual, having a good time, and you're the guy with the tie on, you're the guy or the gal with the long dress, and uh, you don't want to do that on a week like we just had, where it's 103 degrees outside. That's the worst, when you're sitting there coveting the comfort of the people around you, because you overdressed and they underdressed. But on the flip side of that, you don't ever want to be the person who shows up in tank tops and flip-flops, and then you find out that everybody is taking the event Seriously, and they're dressed all nice and, and, and giving it respect. So you don't want to give the others impression that you don't really care. Um, when it comes to church, God isn't so concerned about what we wear when we enter into his presence. You won't find many rules about the quality of clothing we're supposed to have on when we come to church or seek him to worship. <clears throat> now, I had a conversation one time with a, a gentleman at food pantry. He tried to invite him to come to church. He said, I can't come to church because I don't own a suit. And uh, I, I assured him, listen, if you want to wear a suit to church, that's great, and that's, it's, it's a great way to show the Lord that you're serious about worship, but you don't have to wear a suit to church. She, the tie is not your admission. Uh, God wants to minister to your heart no matter how you're dressed, so come how you can. So the, the, the outside is not nearly as important about what is going on, what is inside. He does care about the state of our hearts, he cares about the state of our minds as we gather near to worship Him. And we're going to read today in Ecclesiastes that some make the mistake of approaching God with the wrong state of mind. Their heart is improperly dressed for the, the situation of worship that they come into. Their attitude heading into the time of worship is, is wrong. And, and the preacher of Ecclesiastes is going to try to help us to understand what that means today. The premise of the book of Ecclesiastes is to experimentally take a step away from God. This is Solomon, the second or third king rather of Israel. He is a man of great supernatural wisdom. And so he writes this book because he knows that many wonder if fulfillment can be experienced apart from God. Uh, he knows in his heart of hearts that it cannot be. But he goes through this process of showing us, the reader, that no matter how hard you try to seek fulfillment and joy and happiness and peace in this world, if you're doing it apart from God, then the result will be the same. Vanity of vanities. But as he makes this experiment happen, as the preacher of Ecclesiastes tries the ways of the world, as he tries to see if power and influence will satisfy him, as he tries to see if material blessings will satisfy him, as he tries to to find out if just gaining all the wisdom he can will make him happy and make him, make, him, make him fulfilled. He doesn't take his eyes totally off of God. In fact, he maintains a high degree of reverence for the Lord who created him. And so in these three verses today, he's going to instruct us to have a similar heart, to be mindful and humble as we come into the house of God for worship. So starting in verse 1, we're going to read three verses today in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Solomon says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. 
To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Do not let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Would you bow with me as we ask in prayer for the Lord to be with us together as we take this scripture to heart and ask that the Lord would use it to change us. Our Father, we draw near to you in worship right now. God, we are so happy that we have this avenue of interaction, that we can come near to you and be blessed by this eternal truth that you have preserved for us, God. You are holy. You are set apart, God. And so as we come to you, remind us that we are coming to put our eyes on that which is completely different from what we find in this world. You are so perfectly pure, You are without error or contradiction, Lord God. And so, Father, there is really nothing better that we can be doing with our time than seeking You. But Father, we confess that often when we come to Your house, we do not have our minds and hearts in the right place. And so I do ask, Lord God, I petition for You, that You would help us to understand where we need to be when we come into Your house, that You would humble us and settle us down. For those of us who carry burdens of distraction into this place, I pray that you would give us the strength to set them aside, that we might put our full attention on you, Lord God, and give you what what you deserve right now, our undivided heart. So I pray, Lord God, that as we come before you, that we recognize that we are a people in need, and that all that we need is found in you. Thank you for your provision, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The end of chapter 4, you might recall, the preacher illustrated the importance of relationships. Two are better than one, he said. A cord of three strands are not easily broken. As frustrating as this world that we live in can be, we can be a comfort to one another. We can find great support and encouragement in real friendship, particularly as we draw near to others who are also drawing near to the Lord. But the most important relationship that we can have is not a marriage relationship or a friendship or even our families. The most important relationship that we can have is a right relationship with the Lord our God. And that relationship is sadly misunderstood by so many people. There is a problem with the way that many approach the house of God. To pursue active relationship with the Lord is described here in Ecclesiastes 5 in terms of walking into God's house. Now let's make sure we understand the terms here as we we try to parse this illustration. When Solomon refers to the house of God in verse 1, is he speaking of a specific place or is he speaking more broadly? Of course, in Solomon's day, depending on how old he was when he wrote this book, the first thing that would probably pop into an Israelite's mind as they read this would be the grand temple that Solomon built in honor of God, the temple that David was not qualified to build, and yet his son Solomon was allowed to do so. This temple was a center of worship for them, and in many ways it replaced the tabernacle, which had functioned as a portable house of worship for the people of Israel in their wanderings before they came into the Holy Land and settled permanently. Um, We should not limit our understanding of Solomon's warning here to only have to do with the physical structure of God's Uh, of God's house, where his presence was presumed to reside. If 
if we could presume, <clears throat> as if we could presume rather, that there is no more a temple for us to worship at, that there is no longer a tabernacle that we should gather to. And so the words that the preacher is sharing to us today aren't as relevant anymore. Perhaps they were useful to the Israelites who had to go to a temple, but we don't have a temple like that anymore. So we can just kind of pass this section of Scripture without really applying it. We'd be wrong to think that way. In the New Testament, the heart of every believer is the place where the Holy Spirit now dwells. The holiest of holies in the temple was the place where the presence and the Spirit of God was believed to dwell and rest upon Israel. But we read in places like 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, which teaches us that we are to view our bodies as a temple of the Holy Spirit, that God has placed His presence within us now. 1 Peter 2 teaches us that we are supposed to think of the church as a group of living stones that are being built together to function as a, a living house of worship for the Lord where the living sacrifice is our own lives, not some animal that has to be offered again and again, but we, we give our lives as a living sacrifice in honor of the one pure and perfect sacrifice that Christ made for us. So we would be short-sighted to think this passage is only a field guide to visiting the physical temple in Jerusalem, which has been destroyed for centuries now. It is probably best then to see the house of God in verse 1 as referring to any place where God is properly worshipped, anywhere that His presence is sought. Since we don't only seek the Lord in a temple or a church building, the ramifications are not just limited to Sundays either. Although it is right to understand Sunday worship as being particularly impacted by what we are learning today, since the Lord's Day is God's regular means for grace for us, we come together because He has commanded us to do this and He knows that we need it. He knows that it is important and good for us. Verse 2 goes on to explain that God lives in heaven and man lives on earth. By saying that, Solomon is pointing out the fundamental problem that man doesn't just naturally have unlimited access to God. There is a spiritual gap that exists between man who is imperfect and sinful, and a God who is perfect and pure. This is a gap that must be breached if we want to be near to Him. And it is a gap that we have created with our rebellious hearts. The Apostle Paul describes this problem in his introduction to the Roman letter. You can turn there in chapter 1, if you like, of Romans. Whereas he begins to lay the foundation for our need for salvation, which we will, he will thoroughly then go on to describe in the first few chapters of that book, he begins by saying in Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, who's he speaking of here? He's speaking of all humanity. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul is describing here the state of the lost world that we live in. Sons and daughters of Adam, the first sinner, all walking in the pattern that he set so very long ago. Let me point out a few things about this verse from Romans chapter 1. Paul shows us here that the lost know God. It says, for although they knew God. And in the Greek, this word for, for know or knowledge is gnosko, which means they had an awareness of God. It doesn't mean that they, they knew Him deeply or intimately, 
but they were not ignorant of His existence. They know Him well enough to understand that He is real and that He deserves respect and reverence. Though they know God, they choose not to honor God. They don't know Him personally, but they can see that they owe Him something great. He is, after all, the one who has made them. People know this in their heart of hearts. They know their sin against Him. They know that their life apart from Him is an insult to Him. It's a form of rebellion on an eternal and cosmic scale. But that knowledge is not itself enough to lead a person to repentance. Rather than turn away from sin, these people that he's talking about here in chapter 1 of Romans darkened their hearts and became futile, choosing to act like fools rather than submit to this awesome Creator God. This essentially reveals what we all know deep down inside, that every human being is guilty of sin. Every human being breaks the law of God. This natural inclination to sin and every choice to break God's law that flows out of it poisons the way that we interact with this God who is in all ways holy and righteous. If He were only the Creator and not the King over what He had created, maybe our sin would not ruin our relationship with Him. But the fact that God is the judge over all that He has made, that that we are all subject to His rule, apart from Christ, that means we are guilty before Him. He is in heaven ruling, sustaining, judging, and we are on earth, subject, independent. But the human heart doesn't naturally acknowledge that. Romans 1 goes on to say in that verse we just read that they arrogantly claim to be wise, proving their foolishness in exchange the real God for false gods that they have invented for themselves and made in the image of themselves and of the things that they've seen with their eyes. So rather than yielding to the superior wisdom of God and trusting that His words are worth following, human beings decide to not only blaze a trail for themselves, but they want to redefine worship itself as well. They want to define on their own terms how they're going to interact with this God that they know is real. This, by the way, friends, is not the condition of exceptionally sinful people alone. It is the condition of every human being. It is the default heart of every man, woman, and child. Are you a Christian today? Do you follow after Christ? Before you did, Romans 1, 21-23 described the condition of your heart too. So this default condition impacts the way that we draw near to God. Our sin creates a gap that must be breached. Drawing near to the presence of God in worship should therefore not be done carelessly. The debt that we owe to God makes us subject to His wrath. So any attempt to come near to the Heavenly One needs to be done with care. Even for the redeemed, even for those who are alive now in Christ, for whom Christ has defeated sin, there needs to be an awareness of the fall and an appreciation for the drastic measures that God's Son took to overcome that fall. We can't afford to be flippant and thoughtless when we come close to the sovereign King who has every right to judge us. So let us consider the importance that God's Word places on not defiling His house. In Leviticus chapter 15, verse 31, Moses records what God revealed to him. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness 
lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. It's quite a drastic warning, isn't it? In other words, the tabernacle was a very holy place, that place where the presence of God dwelt heavily among Israel. And so those who would enter into the tabernacle with a flippant heart, not really caring about their attitude towards the Lord God, thinking that this is all just religious practice that they're going to follow through on, but not realizing that there is power behind this God that they have said that they worship, that they put themselves at risk. And any who would enter into the holiest of holies without a purified and sanctified heart would physically die from that. Do you remember what happened in 1 Corinthians 11 when the Apostle Paul is addressing a situation in the city of Corinth where believers were beginning to take the Lord's Supper lightly. It had devolved into this great big party where people were being inconsiderate to one another. and It was all about the food and, and, and the get-together. It wasn't really about the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And he warns those Corinthians to begin to think properly about the Lord's table. Keep your party at home, essentially, is what God says. But when you draw near, draw near reverently and make sure that everyone who needs to partakes of the table the fact that they hadn't been doing that, he says, has caused some of you to become sick and some of you to even fall asleep, which means to die. So there was a seriousness with which the people needed to draw near to the Lord God. We cannot take worship of the Lord lightly. We can't keep this at arm's length either and just think about this as an Old Testament construct. How did each of us walk into God's house today? What is our mindset and our attitude when we come near to worship the Lord God together? Have we considered the importance of this regular gathering that God has called us for? Is this just an interruption in an otherwise busy weekend day where we have several things on our list we want to accomplish, but we've got to knock this out first? Are you waiting until the last minute to get ready to come to church because... Honestly, you'd rather skip it if you wouldn't feel guilty about it later. Do you now think about how long the pastor's going to preach because you're eager to get over to uh, In-N-Out Burger or wherever you're going afterwards with your family? Or are you happy that the Lord is giving to you spiritual bread that you might feast upon that and be filled? Were your unspoken goals in coming to church today spiritual goals or were they far more social in nature? Not that the two are entirely separate. But is our weekly gathering on Sunday really just about connecting with our friends or are we here to sincerely seek the Lord God and praise Him for the good that He has done in our lives? Have you yet to really even engage God until just now when I mentioned this? I am guilty of this as well. As a pastor, I've got to be particularly careful that I don't come into God's house just with a list of things that I'm responsible for that need to be taken care of, but that I'm careful to come in and begin to really truly worship the Lord along with you, my brothers and sisters, because this is for me too. To come before the Word of God, to proclaim the truths of God is for my heart as well. Are we careful when we come into the Lord's house? Guard your steps, says Solomon. This evokes Yahweh's invitation to Moses, doesn't it? When God revealed Himself to Moses in the wilderness in the form of a burning bush that miraculously did not become consumed with fire, 
he spoke to Moses. Do you remember the first things that he said in this phenomenon? Exodus 3.5, then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have great confidence that the minds of Solomon's first readers made the connection between Moses' calling and the preacher's instructions to guard their steps as they drew near to him. Whenever one of God's messengers would appear, one of those angels that we read about in Scripture, what is one of the first things they say to them? They say, do not be afraid. Why? Because when we draw near to God, when we are closer to His message and His truth, we begin to become afraid and fearful. We have a reverent uh, concern. And so those angels would often say, do not be afraid. I am drawing near to you. Draw near to me. When Isaiah is in the throne room, in chapter 6 of, of his prophecy, he believes that he's going to be undone because he's in the presence of God. He fears that because he is a person of unclean lips, because there is sin in his life, that being exposed to the presence of God is going to annihilate him. And then again, God provides a way for him to be cleansed, to be able to be in the presence of the living God. We see similar things when John, who's brought up into the throne room of heaven in the book of Revelation, responds to that by just bowing in worship to whatever he sees. And a couple of times God has to correct him because we're not supposed to worship angels. But he's so, so struck by this, the wonder of this vision that he's been given that he bows to these messengers and, and, and he's, he's humble before the Lord God. He knows he doesn't really deserve to be there. And so our attitude when we come near to God should be an, an attitude of humility. You couldn't prepare at all to be here had not Jesus prepared the way for you to be here. This gap that we are speaking of, this gap that exists between heaven and earth, between God and man, would have persisted had it not been for the work of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Why did He send Christ? He sent Christ because apart from Christ, we would remain forever enemies to the Lord God and be subject, subject to His wrath. Because He is King and Judge over all that He has made, He cannot allow sin to persist in His kingdom. And so God will judge wrath properly and fully on those who have sinned against Him. But because God has a heart to draw near to people, He made a drastic step to procure a way that we might be able to walk across this gap, that we might be able to see this void bridged, that we might be near to this God who is so holy that we don't deserve to be in His presence. Jesus Christ walked this earth perfectly pure and kept every law. He fulfilled everything that had been given to Moses. He did what none of us could do. And that perfect life was offered as a sacrifice for us so that those who could not fulfill the law, spoiler, that's all of us, those of us who could not fulfill the law might have the law fulfilled in Christ on our behalf. He paid the penalty for our sin so that we might be able to reverently come into the presence of God and know Him in a personal way. Even as we come to give to God today, as we come to give and offer sacrifice to Him, remember that none of our righteousness, none of our good deeds was pleasing to God while we were still living in our sin. He had to radically change us from the inside out and bring us to spiritual life in order to make any offering we had to bring to Him acceptable and pleasing. A fool thinks that he has something to sacrifice apart from what he has been given in Christ. And so our posture must first be as one who would not give to the Lord, but for, firstly as one who would receive from the Lord. 
And that is why the preacher instructs us to listen to the, to the Lord God. That, that is greater than foolish sacrifice, is it not? If we do not listen to God, we won't know what He wants us to give to Him in worship. So many people have invented creative and sometimes outrageous ways that they try to worship God in our society today. They give offerings that God never asked for. They worship Him in ways that He never desired. And if they were careful in approaching the Word to worship God in a biblical manner, they would see that many of those ways of worship are in fact opposed to the way that God has called us to worship Him. So we are to draw near to listen. Let the Lord tell us how we are to worship Him in grace and in spirit and in truth. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you spend time, friends, in preparing your minds for action? To listen to God is to do more than just hear the things that He has to say, but to listen in a Hebrew sense is to literally obey what you have heard from Him, to be ready to respond to the things that He has revealed to you. Are you preparing your mind for obedient action to what you hear on a Sunday morning? Are you doing that when you open the Scripture throughout the week and you seek God on your own? I encourage you, friends, to make use of the Holy Spirit that God has given That Holy Spirit has so many blessings and functions in our lives, and one of the most important is that by the Holy Spirit, we can read the Word of God and know what it means. So it makes sense that when we go to to Scripture, when we go to read, that we might begin that by just humbly, simply asking the Lord to give us eyes to see what we need to see, that we would not misinterpret, that we would not interpret things according to the waves of the worldly opinion, but that rather we would seek to know what God is truly desiring to communicate to his people. So let us pray before we enter into the times that we spend together in the word. Be careful how you hear and how that hearing manifests itself in your life. Think about Luke 8:18 where Jesus says to his disciples, "Take care then how you hear." Think about those words. "Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Take care then how you hear. What is this thing that is either given or taken away in verse 18 of Luke 8? It has to be faith. To he who has faith and trusts in the Lord God and seeks him with a reverence, more faith will be added unto that believer. But to one who thinks that he has faith, who hasn't truly prepared his mind to understand the things of God, who is not desiring to worship God the way that God desires him to to worship, then what he thinks is faith, that will even be taken away from him. We've heard several testimonies this week of high-profile Christian people who have apostatized, who have in very public ways declared to the world that they no longer belong to the Lord God. And that ought to be heartbreaking to us just on a, on a human level, that here are two people that unless the Lord does a radical thing and turn their heart back to Him before their life here on earth is done, they will not know Him for eternity. They'll know judgment instead. And so on a very per- personal level, we should mourn that, that proclamation that these individuals have made. But we should not be entirely surprised by it. We live in a world where many people 
are pretending to follow after the Lord God and trying to worship Him on their own terms. So what is going to happen when you worship God on your own terms? You're going to worship God on your own power. You're going to try to do it your way and you're going to be dissatisfied just as the preacher of Ecclesiastes has found himself dissatisfied again and again and again. How, how can we hope to keep up the pretext of true worship if we're worshiping God our way and not His? There will be apostasies. We have been warned of these things. I pray that these individuals who have let go of their proclaimed, their professed faith, that it will cause people to really consider their own hearts. That perhaps some who have been walking in the appearance of holiness would begin to ask themselves, am I taking my faith seriously? Am I truly seeking God or am I just in this for the cultural, religious aspect of it? I pray that people will see that and they will, they will be confronted by that fact that, that we cannot pretend with the Lord, that He knows the depths of our hearts. Consider Hebrews 4, 2-3. It says, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Who's he talking about there? People who have heard the gospel preached to them and yet have rejected the Lord Jesus. The message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. We have to be ready, friends, to listen in God's presence. We have to be ready to come near and invite the Lord God to speak to our hearts. Continue to pray for these individuals who've fallen away that there might be an eventual repentance and the Lord might be glorified in them. Our feet are not the only things, friends, that we need to guard when we draw near to God in worship. Verse 2 indicates that we need to be careful about our words as well. The things that we say in the context of worshiping our God. Verse 2 again, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Those are not easy instructions to a preacher who likes to preach and let his words be many. But we are to enter into the presence of God with few words. From time to time, uh, technology does us a favor. And I noticed that recently some email providers have built a new function into the way that you can send out your email. How many times have you in a rash, emotional state of mind, typed something up and then pushed send and literally milliseconds after your finger hit the enter button or the click on the mouse, you wished you had not sent that email. <laughs> you wished that you had thought it over, that you had prayed about it more. I found that some email providers now have this little, almost like a regret button, where for 30 seconds you can actually click delete and it will, it will go back and unsend that message. It'll never make it to the inbox of the person that you sent it to. And I say hallelujah to that because uh, as a human being, I have made the mistake myself where I should have thought more deeply about the things that I was about to express through words. And I probably would have been better served with silence or with some more reflection before I spoke. Friends, the things that we say may undermine our efforts to draw near to God in worship. The testimony of Scripture has preserved for us Several examples of how a failure to mind our tongue may cause us grief in the house of God. So if you want to examine your heart and, and try to determine whether this is an issue for you, 
then ask yourself questions like this. Do I use my words to convince others, God included, of my personal righteousness? Is that what my talking is about? When I interact with other people and I talk about my day, am I usually talking about the God stuff that I did just because I want credit for having done it? Am I quick to talk about my daily quiet time because I want to make sure everybody knows I have a quiet time? Am I quick to share that, that new theology I'm learning about because I really want other people to know about it as well or because I really want them to know I have mastered it and I have understood it even though it is complex and very few people can grasp it? When we look at Jesus and his interactions with people in his earthly ministry, he constantly was clashing with the people who have fallen into this error themselves. We call them the Pharisees. And Jesus described them as having an outwardly clean cup that was full of disgusting filth. They spent copious time polishing the appearance of righteousness in their lives so that as they spoke to others, they would hopefully impress upon them uh, a respect that they felt that they deserved. And yet, on the inside, in the heart, they had not really considered how lowly they were before the Lord God. What happens when we broadcast our deeds? When we let our right hand know what our left hand is doing? The scripture tells us that when we speak highly of what we've done or who we are spiritually, then we get our reward, but we get it here. And it's not the reward that eventually you're going to want to have. Those who serve the Lord God with a humble heart and with few words, who don't feel compelled to get a pat on the back for everything that they did that was holy and service-minded, they will receive a reward in heaven that is a glorious and everlasting blessing to them. But those who seek to paint a picture of themselves that is holier probably than they really are, their reward will be received here with the fleeting approval of the people they interact with. Has the Lord called you to a place of honor in service? Then praise His name for it. But praise not your own name. Do not be so narrow as to think that He has called you and equipped you so that you might cash in on the benefits of your own recognition. If you are important, He has made you so for His glory, not for your own. You might ask yourself, do I feel compelled to spout everything that I know about God? Have we become so sanctified that our time of listening is done and now we have entered into a season of, of speaking to everyone we know about everything we've ever learned. We should have the kind of a humble heart that recognizes that every one of us, no matter how much education we have received, no matter how many years we have walked with the Lord, no matter how radically God has changed us from our formal sinful state, every one of us can still learn. So let our interactions drive for a greater understanding. But do not only carry this mantle of, I know what you need to know, but get into these in interactions with others with a listening ear as well, wondering what the Lord might teach you through a brother or sister in Christ, even one who comes from humbler means than you, even one who does not have your, your experience or your education. Let us take care that when we come to speak of Christ and the things of God, that we do not come supposing that our view of Him could never be wrong, or that there is not more for us to learn or that everyone else needs to conform to our every interpretation of Scripture, particularly the negotiable parts. And so let our words be few, and let them be the right words. 
the words that coincide with the Lord's Scripture. Let me be clear, this is not a call to silence. It is a call to temperance, friends. We are not to stay quiet and, and constantly keep our thoughts or ideas to ourselves for fear of seeming braggadocious, but we are to be temperate in the way that we bring our knowledge of God to others. We are to be willing to listen as well as to speak. When my thoughts become weaponized and I use them to show off my power, I'm misusing the intellect that God has given to me. I need to learn to use what I have come to know to glorify the Lord and to help a brother, all while humbly acknowledging that my understanding of God is small and it needs to be ever-growing. Another question that we may ask ourselves in diagnostic here, do I make demands of God or try to claim the guarantee of promises that the Lord has not actually made to me? This is such a common error in the church today, friends, and we have to guard ourselves against that. This prosperity gospel that is so prevalent in the world today would teach us that we should have this attitude that as long as we have the faith, God has to provide what we request. But when we pray like that, when our attitude has that posture before the Lord God, we have pushed Him down the totem pole. We have become the one who demands, and He is now under us as if we were His God. We have returned to an attitude that sees the self as just as important and holy as the God who created the self, and this is a perilous place to reside. Think about the words of 2 Corinthians 3, 4-6. through 6. The Apostle Paul says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills meaning those who live according to the law and think that the law and their obedience to it will save them, that is a recipe for death. But the Spirit, the Spirit gives life. And so friends, bring your requests to the Lord. Ask humbly for the Lord to provide for you. But let us not be so arrogant as to come to the Lord God demanding that He give to us what we seek. That is not the right attitude to have in worship. That is a person with unguarded steps entering the house of the Lord. The guarded tongue will not demand of the Lord, but will instead humbly let his requests be known. And having expressed the desire of our hearts to the Lord who already knows those desires, the true disciple will have the attitude that Jesus modeled as he taught his own to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is one other major category of error that flows out of us when we are not moderate with our words, but we're going to spend more time on that next week as we discuss verses 4 through 7, and that is the error of making vows and promises before the Lord God, using your words to proclaim things that you don't have the power to fulfill. So we will be talking more about that next week. There is a, um, there is a role in this preparedness of coming before the Lord God that has to do with the heart. We are emotional creatures, aren't we? If our spirit is not allowed to govern our heart, then we're going to find the challenge of guarding our words all the more difficult. The wrong words can pour out of us if we are affected in heart by anguish. We see that in Job 
chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, where his frustration, his suffering, has caused him to cry out with questions to the Lord God, that the Lord God returns fire and says he is not qualified to ask. We see that sometimes resentment can pour out of us when, when we think that the Lord has given us more than, than we can handle. Yes, the Lord gives us more than we can handle. He does that every day so that we will not live on our own strength, but we'll live on His instead. So let us, let's take the time to consider our emotions and the part that they play in our preparedness of coming into the house of God. Am I angry at God today because He has not given me the desires of my heart? Then let me humbly come forward and confess that to the Lord God. Not shake a fist at Him, not demand that He do different, but let us confess that weakness to Him and ask that He would help us to be content and satisfied in whatever path He has chosen for us. When it comes to things that you say, do you have a short trigger or do you have a long fuse? Ecclesiastes 7.9 will go on to say, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. So don't let your heart control the movement of your mouth. Let your spirit control your heart and then speak from the truth of the heart that God has placed in you. Let not your heart be hasty and utter a word before God. Sometimes this is expressed in grumbling. We come before the Lord God and we complain. We think about the things that we don't have or the challenges that we do have to contend with and we quickly ignore the, the multitude of blessings that God has poured out into our lives. Friends, one of the ways we can prepare for coming into the house of God is by simply just reciting to ourselves all the blessings that God has poured onto us, that we are first and foremost not condemned in our sin if we have Christ. That while we were so far from Him and didn't even want to be near to Him, He knew that we would do best to love Him, and so He gave us a new heart that could love Him. Let us be thankful for the fact that even though we might be going through trial, that we can still think through it that we can still process it, that we can still consider what God might teach us through these trials. Let us be grateful that we do not experience whatever hardships the world has to give us on our own, but that God has provided for us, first and foremost, the Holy Spirit that dwells with us, His own very presence that lives with the, with the hearts of those who have trusted Christ. And then He has also gathered for us saints to be brothers and sisters, a family that will love us and encourage us and help us from becoming defeated in these times of struggle. There is always, friends, something to be grateful for. Sometimes our quick speaking comes out in the forms of jokes about things that are holy. Light-hearted banter about stuff that really should be treated with dignity. And I think all of us need to be careful about that, don't we? There is a price for some of those um, laughter, uh, some of that laughter that we get from others. Is it worth the price of treating God's um, person or his works lightly, if, if, if we joke about the things of the Lord God, then we are, we're not being holy in the way that we approach the things of the Lord. Um, sometimes our mouths speak before we can catch them, saying things that, that we shouldn't say before we've had a chance to think them all the way through. Now, it's one thing to consider things with friends, to, to work through ideas together and to talk theoretically with others. I think that's an important part of discipleship. We consider different aspects of the Lord's return. We consider the ways that God might have blessed us with spiritual gifts. We consider different things and we, we talk through them together um, out loud. But it is another thing to declare you know something when you haven't even really thought it through all the way. So be cautious about rash words. Do not let your, let your mouth 
declare things that may not be true in accordance to the things of God. And of course, one of the things we so often do with our words is say things that would hurt a brother or sister before we consider the true potential for those words to harm. So friends, we're encouraged here. Part of our preparation in worship is to watch what we say, to become better listeners to this God who is in heaven while we are on earth. Funny thing about that, though, Deuteronomy 4.39 says, Know therefore today and lay it in your heart that the Lord is God in heaven and on earth beneath. There is no other. Friends, there is nowhere where you can go from His Spirit. So when the preacher of Ecclesiastes tells us to be careful as we draw near to the house of the Lord God, this doesn't just apply to our Sundays. It applies to the way we carry ourselves before God every day. Do we seek Him? We seek Him humbly, asking Him to give us what we need, asking Him to overcome our natural tendency to be short-tempered or thoughtless to others. I think it would do us well to think of the disciples' prayer again as we close. How does it begin? It begins, Our Father who is in heaven. Think about the contrast there. He is a father to us. That is not a distant being. That is not a being who is so far away. A father is one who is near. A father is one who is gentle, who is patient, who nourishes and provides. A father is one who is personal to his child. And yet he reminds us that this father is in heaven. So at the same time, God is also transcendent. He is also greater than us. He is also weightier than us in in his person, in his work. And so, friends, let us have the proper reverence as we gather together in the house of God, as we seek Him in prayer, as we open His Word to study Him, that He might reveal to us who He is and have us worship, worshiping Him according to His desire for us. Let's bow our heads and, and close in a word of prayer. Lord, I thank You for Your grace, and I pray that we would not forget that if it were not for Your grace, none of the things that we spoke of today would even be a possibility or a desire for us. But because You are so good to Your people, Lord, The ones you have chosen have been transformed and will continue to be transformed. And there are many more that you would bring into your sheepfold, Lord, as Christ said in John. And so I thank you that we are a part of that mission. And I pray, God, that as we come together as a church, that you would give us a great heart and desire for holy things, that we would not be content to be wrapped up in what is temporary and fading away. Lord, let the book of Ecclesiastes, if it does nothing else, give us a a real distaste for the things that used to be everything for us. Help this book to display for us how futile it is to be stuck under the sun. And God, instead, point us to heaven. Help us to realize that we've been given this great opportunity, Lord God, through your grace to be near to you, that we dare not squander it, Lord, with thoughtless worship, that we would not do disservice to you or dishonor to you by entering into here without a mind or a heart set on you. And so God, I pray that you would help us to be more like Christ who worshiped you well, Lord God, who, who prayed well, who did all that the law demanded in utter obedience to you because he loved you. I pray, Father God, that now that we have been absolved of our sins through Christ, that you would also help the law to be like a beautiful light to us, that we would not resent it, but that we would see it as a, a way for us to learn more about ourselves and about you. Father, I pray that you give us the strength to walk in its truth and to honor you in every word and deed. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.